0: Hello, and welcome to episode two of L.A. Meekly, the podcast.
1: Zafran.
0: Gonzalez.
1: Zafran. My old business partner? Zafran. I
0: thought I killed you after the last episode.
1: Just because you left me at the mall doesn't mean I'm dead. You will be visited by three ghosts. The first ghost, the ghost of Christmas past. The second ghost
0: the ghost of christmas you friends. know you know i'm jewish right
1: oh that explains it
0: i i don't want the i don't want the christmas carol package could you show me what it would be like if i was never born no We come to you, dear listener, with heavy hearts (laughs) because we recorded this episode uh, for the first time last night. Nice to see you again. (laughs) Yeah. Too soon. (laughs) And we must have tapped into something that we ought not to have tapped into because uh, apparently we left the lens cap on the microphone. (laughs) And there was no sound that was recorded. So we, ha- we are doing this all again. So if we sound a little less shocked by what <laughs> we're telling each other, uh, that's the reason why. We, so we apologize. We were crying last night. We'll explain again, since you didn't hear it the first time, <laughs> that this is going to be... We wanted to do an episode like this in uh, when it was appropriate on Halloween, but we, we t- couldn't get our act together by then. So we've decided to do it around this time of the year. Mm-hmm. We are doing creepy Christmas, haunted Hanukkah. We're going to tell creepy slash haunted legends and just various, uh, you know, high profile crimes that have occurred that oh. are ingrained in the LA
1: culture That's and history. Right. Some some of these things were affected by the LA setting. Other things affected the LA setting.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it all became part of the tapestry that is
1: New York City. <laughs> <laughs> St. Louis.
0: <laughs> all right, so we're, we're each going to tell three stories. <laughs> <laughs> Around <the> campfire. <laughs> yeah. we, you will be visited by three stories. <laughs> the story of Christmas past, the story of Christmas present, and the story of what's going to happen to all of you if you don't write a nice review
1: after you listen to this episode. So Greg's going to get it <clears> started <throat> and take it away. I'm going to start with a very high-profile one. I, uh, I learned about the, the Sharon Tate's murder when I was like, really, really young. And it was the most gruesome, morbid thing I had ever heard of because, you know, it's awful. You know, people are still fascinated by it. And then later in life, I learned that there was haunting surf surrounded it. So I, I really wanted to delve into that. And I'm glad I did because it's very interesting. It doesn't only start with Sharon Tate. It goes back uh, some years before that with Jean Harlow. It's actually where it starts. So I'm going to give you a couple addresses, let you think about it. We have Paul Burns House, 9820 Easton Drive, Alley, California, 90210. It starts here at Paul Burns House. He is a MGM film executive. He marries Jean Harlow, who's a, a young, beautiful actress at the time. She is the latest sexpot on the scene. She's very beautiful. She's blonde. She uh, just shows off her cleavage to everybody. They get married when she's really young. He's 26 years older than her. He's considerably older. She's smitten with him, and he has been described uh, a lot as just being indifferent towards her. Byrne didn't seem quite as happy as Harlow, and the... Uh, and, uh, as the time went by, he became even less happy with the situation. He bought this house for her, which is on Easton Drive in the Hollywood Hills. And Harlem hated it and decided to sell it, but he put his foot down, claiming the house was where they wanted. He wanted them to grow old together, which was weird because he really, is all a lot.
0: He had already done that. Anyways, let's get to the good stuff. Can we get to the
1: good stuff, please? Finally. He kills himself in that house. He asked her to leave for the night. They had been fighting a lot, and, then, and uh, there's a lot of different reports about why they're fighting. Some people think that he was having an affair. Other people think that it was because he was impotent, which he was telling everybody. Um, there are some claims that he was gay. Is he telling everybody. He's, that? He told everybody. Listen <laughs> to this. And his death is a mystery too. You know, they, they find his dead body, um, and supposedly, I don't know how they, they figure this out because it seemed to have been a, a snuffed up crime scene. I'll explain that in a bit. But like, he is just completely naked, and he smells of her fragrance, and there's just her stuff is everywhere. So a lot of people thought that she murdered him. A lot of people uh, years later who would do biographies on Sheet Harlow think that she uh, knows who did it, but she didn't murder him. Not enough material for me. (laughs) You don't pay me enough to do the research for this. (laughs) The butler finds him dead. Before he, butler calls the cops. The butler calls two uh, film producers, Louis Mayer and Irving Thalberg, and they come over and they rush over to the scene, and they're there for two hours before they call the cops. And Bird had, you know, supposedly written a suicide note and Mayer had stolen it and then returned it later and the note's really funny and it it seems like it's something it's, you know, I've read suicide notes before I read yours all the time this one does not seem like one it seems very whimsical to me and I'll read it to you right now "Dear Dear, unfortunately this is the only way to make good the frightful wrong I have done you and wipe out my abject humiliation I love you Paul you understand last night was only a comedy very strange now, don't you mm-hmm. think? Now, they read this note to Jean Harlow, and she's not much help with it. She doesn't really get it. And if she does get it, it's very cryptic. If she does get it, she never tells anybody what it means. So there's this inside mystery to this. A lot of people think that he was murdered. I guess the the film studios were trying to, like, snuff up a scandal. Any, like, evidence that might have leaned towards a certain direction has been like, pretty much wiped out by these two film producers. So after that, you know, people move in that house after this hell, um uh, suicide. You can't see me do quotations. i do doing air quotations. Suicide happens. People claim to see Paul Byrne in the house. People uh, neighboring the house and who live there claim to see a, a blonde woman who looks a little bit like Jean Harlow standing um, on, on the patio looking out. Oh, I forgot to mention. <laughs> she dies very young, too. <laughs> Nothing suspicious. She has liver failure, but she's really young at the time when she dies. They claim to see uh, Jean Harlow's ghost there. They hear voices. Some people claim to see Paul Byrne this will come back to you in just a minute. There's been a couple other deaths on the property too. Um, a man hung himself there, another person has drowned in the pool. Let's skip over to the 60s now. Jay Sebring moves in here. Jay Sebring is the hairstylist of the stars. He is the, supposedly the basis for Warren Beatty's character in Shampoo. He's a very fanciful character. He moves in here. He's dating Sharon Tate at the time who is a model barely turning into an actress. It's, this is before years before she meets Roman Polanski. She's staying over there. He leaves town, so she's there alone. She's sleeping in a bedroom by herself. And some people will call this a haunting. What it really was called by a lot of people is called a premonition, which to me is even scarier. Mm-hmm. So she's sleeping alone in a bedroom, and... Um, According to her, the door opens, and what is described as a little man comes Ooh. in. She learns later it looks like Paul Byrne, and supposedly the ghost of Paul Byrne, comes in, and he starts shuffling around the room, so she gets there, obviously gets up, and decides... He loved to shuffle. He loved to shuffle. That's how you knew this mm-hmm. was Paul Burns. So uh, she describes it as a short and somewhat angry man, which is how <laughs> Jean Harlow would be able to describe him as well. So she, um, she goes downstairs to have a drink, and then she sees something even worse, which is... Uh, an apparition of someone who's bloodied uh, all over, tied to the post of the, the stairs, <laughs> the handrails of the stairs with rope, and she says it looks like Jay Sebring. So she, the, uh, uh, another... Did she one, go up to it and say that to it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, are you Jay Sebring? She, she is, is, obviously, goes back upstairs, her nerves are shaking, I don't know why she didn't run out. Yeah, this, is this is what story. I don't understand about this story.
0: When you see something
1: like that, you... <laughs> Don't. No. Don't live in the city. You <laughs> leave the city. You never come back. She needed a drink for nerve-sitting purposes, and she didn't know where the bar was, and something told her about this bookcase. Inside, there was a hidden bar. She poured a shot. So that happens there. Now we skip back over. Years later. We go one and a half miles south down Ban- Benedict Canyon to 10050 Seattle Drive, Los Angeles, California. This is the house where... Um, infamously she is murdered along with jay sebring who is visiting her at the time and abigail folger who's an heir to the uh folgers coffee <laughs> and then uh, a couple of other people one guy's name i can never pronounce i'm not gonna try and stephen Perrin. Charles Manson. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't know about the manson killings I, I don't know how you don't know about it charles manson got a, a couple of people to co-visit this house where this i forgot who was a music producer used to live but that music person wasn't there. The real reason, I mean, there's a lot of claims of what Helter Skelter was really about when it came down to it really was there was a member of the Manson family who was going around committing crimes very similar to these murders where he was hacking people to death and writing on, on the walls. They wanted to show the cops that he was innocent by committing similar crimes. So like, oh, you see, people are getting hacked you better <laughs> <them> go. <laughs> so, it just happened. Uh, it just happened. So they decided to commit a crime in similar fashion to get their friend out of jail. This involves uh, hacking three people to death. Susan Atkins, Patricia Quinwinkle, Linda Sabian, and the infamous, very scary Tex Watson go to the house and kill everybody. It's creepy and horrifying, but it's not haunted. <laughs> a lot of people don't know this. They tie a noose around Sharon Tate, and there's a beam that's not connected to the ceiling. They loop that over, and then they tie a bleed tab like a So it's like a tug of war. <laughs> so if one runs away, the other one is pulled. And then they just gets stabbed. Sharon Tate gets stabbed 108 times. She had a baby at the time. She no longer had the baby after that. Uh, there's a lot of claims that the baby was pulled out of her body. I don't think that's true. But she dies there, obviously. Epic Fulger dies there. And then J.C. Ring is tied to the handrails, and he's stabbed to death and bloodied, much like the apparition that Sharon Tate had seen years before at Paul Byrne's house up the street. So nobody wants to live there anymore, obviously. <laughs> The neighbor, uh, David Ullman, moves in and he begins to hear screams coming from the place. He hears footsteps. There's a lot of like just spooky behavior after that, a lot of orbs and cold spots and stuff like that. I can't attest to that, obviously. You've (laughs) never been cold in your life.
0: (laughs) What's this feeling
1: people keep talking about? (laughs) The the neighbor has filmed a lot of stuff. He's currently doing a documentary called The House at the End of the Drive, I believe. Last House on the Left at the End of the Drive. Actually, very similar. (laughs) If you've seen Last House on the Left. Probably less pee. Um, <laughs> no, <not>. Same amount. <laughs> I'm peeing just talking about it. <laughs> We're all peeing. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of footage online of them going through Sharon Tate's old house. And there's a lot of what I described as lint coming across the screen. They describe <laughs> as orbs. I don't know. Trent Nezler of Nine Inch Nails moved in years later. And he called it, I forgot, what do you call it? Pig Studios or something like that? Because Death to Pigs uh, is yeah. written on the walls uh, in blood. There's not a lot of stories about it. Uh, his experiences, but you know, how could you live there and not feel like the, you, that? Feel that gut feeling of people. How workers. would you live there? How period. could you live there? How could you live there? Apparently, they they knocked down the the house. They like even moved the dirt and they changed the address to like one zero zero six six or <laughs> and something. They moved it on top of an
0: ancient Native <laughs> burial ground instead.
1: There's a picture online. Somebody uh, took a picture there. They found the door like the they they moved the door to another house. Jim Morrison, <laughs> hate you so much we one day talk about just how uh, Janis Joplin smashed a glass against Jim Morrison's head? <laughs> that could be an entire podcast episode. I can go on forever. I read this somewhere that Trent Reznor was at a market nearby and Sharon Tate's sister came up to him. And she was just like, how how can you live there? And he's, he was trying to defend it. Like, it's part of American folklore. And she was like, my sister was killed there. Like, how do you like live there? That's Sharon Tate's story. My first story is both... <laughs> Or my first story.
0: <laughs> Chapter one, <laughs> the story. It was a dark and stormy story. <laughs> so this one is both on the creepy and the haunted sides. Mm-hmm. It starts with a really creepy, high profile murder and ends with a nice haunting. Mm. And it's the Menendez murders.
1: Oh, I've always wanted more about this.
0: Yeah. 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 What? Yeah. We'll start at the beginning. Okay. Jose Menendez was a Cuban immigrant, and Kitty Anderson was a good old American girl, and the two met at Southern Illinois University in 1962. They were they were like they were like Lucy and Ricky, <laughs> except that little Ricky went on to grow up and kill both of them. <laughs> and we never saw that episode, did we? No, that's the, uh, that's the Thanksgiving special. <laughs> so, Jose was very determined to become successful in the United States, mm-hmm. and this dominating drive and overpowering personality eventually took over and defined his entire family. So, Kitty's dreams and ambitions uh, had to take a back seat right. as Jose started to move up in the world of business eventually to become the president of Lyon Container Company, right, then an executive at Hertz, and then soon the worldwide general manager of Hertz. The car rental place? The one and only. Okay.
1: Not donuts? Hertz Donuts?
0: Uh, yeah, worldwide general manager, which was a position where he earned a reputation for abusing and demeaning his <laughs> subordinates and former coworkers in all in all of his jobs not just that one said that he liked to humiliate his white colleagues especially when they made mistakes because he himself was insecure about being foreign and he insisted that people call him Joe rather than Jose
1: no way Jose
0: <laughs> <laughs> After that, he went on to work for RCA Records, where he was the one responsible for signing musicians like the Eurythmics and Jefferson Starship. Ooh. And he was known here for having somewhat dubious business practices, but he ended up becoming the executive vice president and chief operating officer for RCA Records Worldwide Operations. Yeah. After RCA, Jose became president of Live Entertainment, a video distribution company in L.A., and that moved his family out of New Jersey and into Sweet Calabasas. Oh, Calabasas! They're very similar, Jersey and Calabasas. Yeah, <laughs> it is, it's the New Jersey of the West. During this whole time, Jose dominated—sorry, Joe dominated—the relationship he had with Kitty. And, uh, sorry, kitty cat. And at the same time, he had many a mistress. And this was a secret for a while, did. Yeah, you know, but soon enough, kitty found out and left the family for a short period of time, but she soon came back depressed and suicidal. So it was kitty 2.0. <laughs> also during this time, the couple had two kids. They had Lyle born in 1968 and Eric with a K born in 1970. So Jose, of course, wanted his sons to become even more successful than he himself had become. So he pushed them very hard to, you know, grow up to be refined businessmen. And he became frighteningly controlling over every aspect of their lives, so much so that the boys developed stutters, (laughs) chronic stomach pains, and really bad tempers. Isn't that normal? Yeah, it's just a, just yes. another kid. The brothers quickly took to staying together all the time and they so they would comfort each other against the way they were being treated mm-hmm. by their dad. So as a result, Eric, who was the younger one, grew up worshipping his big brother Lyle more than anyone else in his life. Right. So both kids, of course, grew up to be very immature. And at age 14, Lyle was still wetting his bed and playing with stuffed animals. <laughs>
1: What's the cutoff point for that anyways?
0: 26. They also started to exhibit some seriously disturbing psychological issues. Mm -hmm. When they were 12 and 15, their female cousin was visiting their house, and they were all playing wrestling on the floor. And all of a sudden, without exchanging a word to each other, the two brothers tied up their cousin and started to undress her. And she screamed, and then they backed off, like, just as suddenly as they had started, like a pack of hyenas. (laughs) And then not long after this, all three of them were watching TV, and all of a sudden, Lyle climbed on top of her without any warning again and started to molest her, but then she managed to run away. Uh, They have, like,
1: telepathy, like a weird telepathy if they're just like, okay.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Jose felt that it was necessary to become very good at one sport. Mm -hmm. Because he himself uh, was really good at swimming, and that's how he got a scholarship to go to college. So he made the boys both pick a sport to which they would devote themselves. But no team sports, because oh that would God. challenge Jose's authority over them. <laughs> both
1: boys ended up picking tennis. Yeah, pitting them against each other, or the same team?
0: They uh, One of them was the ball, and one of them was <laughs> the net.
1: <laughs> Stay still, Lyle.
0: Most importantly, Jose wanted them to attend an Ivy League school, Mm -hmm. which he had always wanted to be able to do, but he had never been able to achieve. Uh, After graduate. he just kept trying to get into an Ivy League school. (laughs) The only problem was that the boys appeared to have learning disabilities, which was a fact that Jose would not accept. And the difference the difference in how poorly the boys performed in class contrasted with how well their homework was done at home suggested that their parents were actually doing their homework for them. Best parents ever. Yeah. Except for everything else, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so somehow Lyle did end up getting accepted into Princeton. He didn't seem to enjoy his time there and apparently did not make many friends aside from just jocks and people he... Kind of, you would see as traditionally popular with you know, cigarettes in their sleeves. Yeah, smoking and, in the boys' room. You know, yeah, riding leather motorcycles. <laughs> he was flown home to California every weekend oh by my his parents. God. Which is, it's always weird. I don't like it when people go home every weekend. No, I don't. No. no. I don't even go home every weekend and I live at home. <laughs> <laughs> Street rat. During his time at Princeton, uh, some of his accomplishments were. Dating several girls that were older than him, upon whom he lavished expensive gifts. Uh One time when finding out that he had to have a roommate, after requesting a single room, he took all of his roommate's belongings and threw them in the hallway. (laughs) (laughs) Plays well with others. (laughs) One friend he did make there was a guy named Donovan Goudreau, Mm -hmm. who did most of his homework for him. And then when Goudreau got accused by the school of stealing, even though it was... Pretty obvious he didn't actually do it. Lyle still didn't say a word to try to clear his friend's name, who did all of his homework for him. (laughs) So then Goudreau was expelled from the school, accidentally leaving behind his ID and security card when he left. Lyle himself eventually got suspended from the school for a year for Mm -hmm. plagiarizing his homework. And during this year, Jose sent him to work at Live, but he was so lazy and bad at his job that he was fired by his dad. Fired by his dad. During this time, Eric was in high school, mm-hmm. and there were suspicions that he was gay, which his parents would not accept either. How so, could they possibly? So his mom gave him a deadline by which to find a girlfriend. <laughs> and it was also around this time that Eric wrote a movie script with his friend named Friends, hmm. no no periods between each letter. Oh, okay. It was about a son from rich parents who finds their will and sees how much money he'd get when they die, so he kills them. Ah. In 1988, Lyle and Eric started uh, breaking into their friends' homes and robbing them.
1: Oh, okay, well, cool.
0: And it didn't, it didn't take very long for them to get caught. Yeah. So Jose hired a lawyer that cut a deal with the court mm-hmm. that Eric, since he was underage, would take all the responsibility for the crimes so that Lyle wouldn't have to go to jail and all Eric would have to do was community service. But part of the deal was also that uh, both brothers had to start undergoing psychological counseling. Oh boy! The proud citizens of Calabasas were so angry with the Menendezes that they didn't want the Jose didn't want to live there anymore because it was so uncomfortable. So he moved the family out of Calabasas into 722 Elm Drive in Beverly Hills, California, United States, Earth, Milky Way. They moved into an impressive mansion Mm -hmm. that used to be the house of both Prince and Elton John, not at the same time. After this, Lyle's girlfriend got pregnant Mm -hmm. and Jose didn't want his son having a baby so young and he didn't like this girl to begin with. So he paid her a personal visit uh, and intimidated her and paid her off to get an abortion (laughs) and never to see Lyle again. And now to make Lyle's life even better, he was now no longer just on academic probation at Princeton. He was now on disciplinary probation. After having discussions with their therapist, Kitty started to become scared of their sons and was fearing that they were sociopaths. She started locking the door to her room at night. And didn't let them have their own keys to the house. Jesus. The sons were getting so out of hand at this point and nothing the parents were doing was working. So they threatened them with the only thing they knew that would scare them, which was to write them out of their wills. It worked
1: a little too good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so everything I'm about to say is, is known based off of the forensic findings that okay. they made from the crime scene. Okay. So picture this. Eyes are close. Fade in. August 20, 1989. Good boy. The boys were out. Jose and Kitty were on the couch in their den watching The Spy Who Loved Me, and they were dozing off, and then the boys came home with shotguns, and they went straight into the den, where the parents were snuggled up, falling asleep on the couch, and they went straight for Jose.
1: (laughs) Very direct guy. Yeah.
0: They were truly their father's sons. (laughs) They shot him a few times in the legs and arms before they went behind him and pointed their shotgun directly behind his head and blew through his face oh boy. and then kitty woke up tried to run away so they shot her in the legs she fell to the ground and then they just started pelting her with shots but she was still alive and she was trying to crawl away but the boys were out of ammo and they debated whether or not they should let her live if they you know if they thought she would be able to identify them or yeah. not yeah. so they decided no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's, let's just get rid of her
1: that was some debate Yeah. what do you think Eric shut, <laughs> shut, up. shut
0: up so they decided she couldn't live and they went back to the car and they filled their guns with birdshot Jesus which Christ. you should keep in mind for one of my other stories later I can't wait and they came back in and they shot her in the face <laughs> and shot when they were looking at the body her hand was like damaged in a way that showed that she wasn't when the bullets were coming at her she wasn't trying to protect her face she was trying to block her eyes from seeing who was doing wow. this to her. Lyle was 21 years old mm-hmm. and Eric was 18. After this, the boys ditched their guns mm-hmm. in a canyon off of Mulholland Drive and went to see License to Kill. <laughs> <laughs>
1: what an appropriate title film. So
0: they went to see License to Kill in Westwood Village and then mm-hmm. after that, after the movie, they went home to get Eric's fake ID so they could go out drinking mm-hmm. and that's when they went, oh, what, what, what happened here? And then they called 911 at around 11pm. Lyle made the call while Eric was delirious and crying in the background. They said their parents were shot, the police came, and they they didn't suspect their brothers in the police, because mm. why would they? Yeah. The brother said that they saw smoke in the air when they came home, and that the mob probably killed them. Probably. But the thing was, none of the other police saw smoke in the air. Mm. So the murder happened August 20th, and then on August 23rd, the brothers spent $15,000 on Rolexes and money
1: clips. <laughs> They're grieving.
0: <laughs> and then on August 24th, uh, they bought a whole bunch of new clothes and cars. Wow. And then on August 25th, they held a big memorial service for their parents at the Directors Guild, to which they showed up an hour late. Fashionably late. (laughs) Yeah. Covered in money clips. (laughs) Are they buried yet? (laughs) (laughs) Wearing a giant Rolex on their stomachs. Like a wrestling belt. (laughs) (laughs) So after all was said and done, the brothers each got $2 million from the will, which was way less than the $90 million that they were expecting to get so oh. the brothers decided that it wasn't safe for them to stay in the mansion because the mob might come back to them to mm-hmm. finish them off how very vague that is yeah they started hopping from hotel to hotel mm-hmm. and one time running up at eight thousand eight hundred dollar bill at the Bel Air Hotel during a five-night stay and then after that they moved into adjoining apartments in Marina del Rey <laughs> adorable <laughs> they, they had a flap in between the walls <laughs> what are you doing to each other. <laughs> Lyle hired bodyguards Uh, to escort him everywhere and limos to drive him everywhere. Sometimes jumping out of the limo before it could even stop so he could jump out and run into stores to buy whatever expensive thing he saw.
1: Quick, a lollipop.
0: (laughs) (laughs) My dad died. (laughs) One for my brother. (laughs) So eventually he couldn't afford the bodyguards anymore. Mm-hmm. So he got rid of them saying that his uncle had made a deal with the mob and that they wouldn't bother him anymore. <laughs> so both of the brothers went on to make horrible investments and choices with their money. For example, sinking, they paid a guy like $60,000 a year to be their full-time tennis trainer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this they they Just got to get the career going. <laughs> it's the same guy who taught O.J. Simpson how to golf. <laughs> and They also bought a chicken
0: wing shop. Oh. And during this time, the forensic evidence of the crime scene started to slowly reveal that the murderers uh, may have been, in fact, the brothers. There's no way. And when detectives started asking questions to the people that they knew, they began behaving even more suspiciously. Mm -hmm. But then the final piece of the puzzle fell into place when the murder guns they found were traced to a big five in San Diego, signed by none other than Donovan Goudreau. His roommate. Lyles. Not his roommate, just his friend. Oh, okay. The guy, but he left all of his stuff. Yeah, he left all his stuff, yeah. But it was signed with handwriting matching Lyle's.
1: Ooh. So
0: on March 8th, on his way to the Cheesecake Factory with <laughs> his friends, Lyle was arrested by the police. And Eric, meanwhile, was in Israel playing tennis, but, uh... He yeah he had the opportunity he could have yeah. never he could have disappeared and never returned mm-hmm. but he was so dependent on Lyle that he turned himself in Aww. so the trial was eventually held at the Van Nuys Courthouse uh-huh. with the same judge that would go on to preside over the Rodney King trial uh-huh. not long after that right and then the brothers in court were really smug and cocky, and they didn't seem to understand how serious that their situation was right. And the family on the Menendez side showed up and supported them. They didn't believe anything. The Anderson side from their mom didn't show up at all. (laughs) There was a long debate in the trial over whether or not the recordings of their therapy sessions could be used as evidence against them. But in the end, they decided that they could be. And what they heard in them was several threats against their parents' lives and basically admitting to the murders. So their defense became, from that point on, that, yeah, we did it. But here's why. Okay. They said that Jose was abusive, which there's plenty of evidence yeah, of. Yeah. But they also said that he sexually molested them, which there was no evidence of. So after a few complicated trials, they were eventually convicted on two counts of first-degree murder, mm-hmm. conspiracy to commit murder, lying in wait, and multiple murder, and they were sentenced to life in prison. Very good. <laughs> yeah.
1: Bravo. Bravo, jury.
0: They tried to get sent to the same prison, but the court wouldn't allow it. So Lyle is now in the California Correctional Institution Mm -hmm. and Eric is in the California State Prison. And now this is where The Haunted comes in. Oh, I can't wait. After the trial, the murder house was sold for $3.7 million. The house seemed okay to live in at first, but then problems kept occurring in the den where they were killed. The TV started to always show a blank screen on Mm -hmm. it, and then the TV kept playing James Bond movies, no matter what channel they were on. And then technicians found no problem with the TV at all. Uh-huh. Uh, they got a new TV. It did the same exact thing. And if you haven't already recalled, the parents were watching a James Bond movie when the murder happened, and the brothers had gone to see a James Bond movie right after they had committed
1: the murder. It's very unsettling. Yes, it is it's terrifying. very unsettling. <laughs> yeah, <that's- laughs> No one should be watching that much James Bond films. I remember uh, watching a special some time ago, and you know it all laid on the guilt of the fact that they went back to the car to reload the gun to come <laughs> back in to shoot their mother. <laughs> that little debate they had, should we kill mom or not? That age-old debate. <laughs> Do you think mom recognizes us? <laughs> Stop calling her mom! <laughs> <laughs> Did you pack
0: my lunch for tomorrow? His last words to her.
1: So what have you got for us now? Okay, I'm going to take us back a little bit. We have been talk about crimes and the hauntings that stem from them. I got one more in store for you. (laughs) I'm going to be talking about the Lincoln Heights Jail, 421 North Avenue 19. I passed this building a million times. I had no (laughs) idea that it was once a jail because now it is the bilingual foundation for the arts or of the arts, excuse me. And for a while it was a, uh, it just housed a bunch of different things like had a boxing gym for a while. (laughs) The Lincoln Heights Jail is known for two things. Bloody Christmas and the hauntings that happen here at the Lincoln Heights Jail.
0: And their pie.
1: That's so good. It's just
0: so I, good.
1: I've never been to the bakery inside, though. They just have pie. <laughs>
0: You'd think a prison wouldn't be known for their pie, but, you
1: know. Horrible cake, though. <laughs> you can only do one or the other. So this place, throughout the years, is known by the locals as the most, one of the most infamous drunk tanks in L.A. You get drunk, they, they haul you in. The Lincoln has Shale, you know, if you go through the pictures on the L.A., a public library coll- photo collection. There's a lot of pictures of just like Christmas Day and the room's just full of drunks. <laughs> and there's there's nowhere to sit. <laughs> this jail is really, really steeped in like L.A. noir history. It played a role in Slick Goon. It played a role in Zutsu Riots. It housed a lot of inmates that are big in like the, the crime world. Mickey Cohen was there for a little bit. Uh, Raymond Chandler spent a night in the drunk take. <laughs> there was a burlesque dancer named Betty Rowland, very beautiful woman who spent a couple nights there. And William Hickman, I don't know if you know who he is, he uh, he kidnapped a little girl named Marion Parker oh. who was the daughter of a, a, a banker. Because I told him about it. I was doing research for Legion Park because I, I lived close to Legion Park. I played there as a kid. I really wanted there to be a haunting in Legion Park. <laughs> there's the Llorona, which is just an old Mexican uh, folktale which is everywhere. It's not specific to Legion <laughs> Park. But what I found when doing research for Legion Park was that there's just a lot of awful things happened to Legion really? Park. One of which is uh, William Hickman kidnaps this little girl. He wants to get a ransom for her. Um, He panics, though, before he's able to get his money, and he kills her. He cuts her into little pieces, but he still wants his money. (laughs) So he makes a a deal with her father to, um, I'll uh, leave your daughter in this spot, you leave the money, and we'll do the trade-off. But he's already killed there. So he left her in many spots. He, exactly. He uh, uses wire to prop her body up on a box and sews her eyes open and drives by the dad like, she's still alive. Dad <laughs> drops the money off. He keeps driving with the pieces of this little girl. He drops it all over Legion Park. cigarette
0: in her mouth. <laughs> Hello.
1: They drop the pieces of little Marion Parker all over Legion Park where I played as a child. And then they end up catching this gentleman in Oregon. They bring him back down. They hold him in, in the Lincoln Heights Jail. They um, always run to Oregon. You can get away with anything yeah, in Oregon. You can
0: get away with murder, actually. That's the <laughs> motto.
1: And supposedly, it goes all the way back to, like, uh, the gold rush. Like, they used to hold, like, unruly gold prospectors there at L.A. at Heights <laughs> Jail, which I can't even imagine. Like what that the would guy be like. from The Treasure of Sierra Madre. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen it. Stop bringing it up. I get it. I'm not as... F- I watch movies. <laughs> <laughs> Bogart. I don't know if you know who he is or not, but totally Bogart. Uh, this is movie I just watched. It's
0: called Casablanca. <laughs> I don't
1: know if you've heard of it. Casablanca. Um, <laughs> queso Blanco. <laughs> so uh, Lincoln Heights Jail um, pretty much gets weeded out because LA County Jail becomes really, uh, it starts taking all responsibilities. The last big thing that it's responsible for is the uh, Watts Riots, they have, they hold a lot of people that are involved in Watts Riots down there. I believe it closes about like 58 or something. I'm gonna be talking really quickly, I'll just bring up a couple of things that I know you're interested in. James Alroy wrote the novel, uh, Alley Confidential, which is part of the Alley Quartet that he wrote. I just finished The Big Norwire. It's great, by the way. He had a whole quartet? Yeah. There's four novels. A barbershop quartet? Of novels? Each novel is about a member of the quartet. <laughs> And then they made one big book called (laughs) The Quartet Avengers. (laughs) So he writes, uh, LA Confidential, they make the movie in the 90s, they film the movie, the scene about Bloody Christmas there at the jail. They film Nightmare on Elm Street there, the jail scene where the boyfriend is, uh, locked up because they think Mm. they killed Tina?
0: Oh, I can think of
1: Johnny Depp's blood right now. (laughs) They also filmed the Blink-182 video and a Lady Gaga video there. I don't want to talk about that anymore. (laughs) I've said too much. It's Christmas. It's 1951. Uh, Everyone's celebrating. Uh, The police are celebrating over at headquarters, and a group of Mexican gentlemen are uh, celebrating at a bar in Riverside, I forgot what it's called, but it's Riverside Drive, which is really close. It runs alongside the Lincoln Heights jail. Two uh, police officers are called to get these men out. They're unruly, and it's time to get them out of the bar. They don't want to leave. A fight breaks out in the parking lot. The cops are outnumbered by these Mexican gentlemen. Um, one cop gets a black guy, the other one gets stitches. They are arrested later that night. Five of the gentlemen are brought back to Lincoln College shale They're arrested at home. One guy doesn't um, get that uh, good treatment. They uh, drag him out of his house, apparently. They beat him in front of his family, and then they drive him back to, guess where, at Elysian Park, and they beat the sh- s*** out of him. <laughs> He's, like, invalid for, like, months after that beating. Like, it, it's horrible. You know, it's still Christmas. Cops have been parting for hours now. They hear that these two cops have been beaten up by, by these guys who are downstairs at the Lincoln Heights Jail. And they hear, the the story keeps keeping embellished about just like a non-confidential. They hear that one of the guys has lost the eye, the other guy's on his deathbed. So they go downstairs. There are the uh, five Mexican gentlemen and two uh, white gentlemen there in the cell. They get brought out. So there's seven. And they line them up against the wall. And I keep reading several police officers, several police officers. And I finally got a number. I don't know if this is true, but I believe it. 50 police officers <laughs> beat 7 mid, unprovoked 7 men for what I remember. Well, five, 5 Mexican men have the power of 50 <laughs> LAPD cops. Yeah, they get beat for what I remember reading was 95 minutes. After the beating, the wall and the floor is just bloody, looks like a, like a killing floor. It's disgusting. It is horrible. They are all hospitalized for a very long time. Understandably hospitalized. <laughs> Wimps. <laughs> this pretty much brings down the LAPD for a while because they had such a good reputation up to that point. They're able to hide it for a while. Have they recovered? I don't think they have, honestly. <laughs> you know, I read a lot about Bloody Christmas, and their names were only mentioned like a couple times. Mm. They, they keep being referred to as five Mexican men. I know Danny Rod- Rodal, I believe, was the man who was uh, beaten in the Lesion Park. Which apparently still... It still is, happens, according to a very credible source. According to our informant, <laughs> yeah, still happens. I, I tried telling him. Oh, I was reading the story about yeah, you you know, we both grew up in Alicia Park, and, uh, and and they took him to the park and beat up. Can you believe they did that? He's like they do it to this day. <laughs> this pretty much brings the police are put under the spotlight as being uh, corrupt. Mm-hmm. The the police chief at the time is William Parker. He's telling the press, oh, these people are coming, Uh, the Mexican activists are just trying to discredit the police department. He's doing his own investigation to figure out what he is, because he actually, from what I read, was not a bad guy. He's doing his own investigation, although he's lying to the press. They find out what happens, and my favorite part of the story is that there's 50 cops who are there for this. They're all getting investigated now by the grand jury. And all 50 of them had a really vague story. They don't remember who was there, what happened. Mm-hmm. And then there's these seven men who were beaten up, and they remember everything. <laughs> and they're like, I wonder who's telling the truth. <laughs> eight officers are uh, locked away after that. Like, they pretty much just... LAPD is broken down at this point. They're seen as corrupt in the, in the eyes of LAPD. That's, that's not,
0: uh, you know, eight. That's kind okay. of a victory to have eight of them.
1: I think uh, it was. <laughs> yeah. Now, nobody is killed in this they're in bloody christmas only their reputations and their bones so the hauntings don't stem from Bloody christmas that was just something that happened there that's a really big event in LA history but it's still a jail a lot of yeah. people died there one man hung himself there now after you know the 58 jail closes down it would be really hard to notice a haunting while the jail was so active you know moans for help are not something that you you know care about when it's full of men who are probably moaning for help at the same time yeah. now that the jail is empty a lot of things start catching people's attentions. You know, there's cell doors that open and close by themselves. There's unusual cold spots. Cold spots. Cold spots. I wish you could experience one. You're just so warm. Stay cold. Oh, Stay cool, baby. <laughs> they hear clanking chains. They hear horrible moans for help. I keep hearing it. It's like the the most blood curling moans for help. Uh, prison moans. Prison Ugh. moans. <laughs> Can you believe it? I read a story from a woman who was the stage manager for the Buying uh, Foundation of the Arts. Who stayed in an office that used to be, I believe, a cell or like a big office there, probably the drunk tank? She's staying with a friend in like a, a sleeping beautiful bag. Office. Beautiful, beautiful. It's very wide, <laughs> nowhere to sit still. <laughs> they're sleeping in sleeping bags, and she, during the night, has just she just has a feeling that like someone's watching her. Mm. And she turns to her friend that she's next to in a sleeping bag, and apparently his eyes are open, but they're like blackened, and he's like possessed and starts speaking like <laughs> And she like, screams, and the guy wakes up and had no recollection of what happened. Some people claim to see uh, a woman in a white, uh, they call her the white bride, and she's like half an apparition who's like dancing by herself, supposedly, uh... Is it half of her body, or is she, she's there, but her partner isn't there? No, half of her body, like half the upper half. Yeah, half, like the, the upper half? half. Upper half. If, no, they, exactly. if I saw legs right. dancing, yeah. I would be really scared if I saw just legs dancing. <laughs> Damn legs. Um... <laughs> bah, 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 <laughs> Hello, nurse! Yeah, so there's a half a... There's a half a bride dancing, on the. Sound Block Three. Supposedly, uh, she was a, like a wife to one of the prisoners, and she would come and they would, you know, whatever. Okay. That's the thing about doing all this research is I, you know, you read the forum posts and you read little things here and there with misspellings, and I keep saying I want substantial evidence, but it's all haunting. There is no substantial evidence. And like I said, when I started, like I, I did wanted to stay away from like ghost hunters and stuff like that. I wanted to, you know, discover stuff on my own. So, Lincoln Heights Jail, I never heard of the jail. I didn't know Bloody Christmas was a real thing. I didn't know mm-hmm. that it was haunted. So, all this stuff was new to me. Then I found out that Cartoon Network has a show called Other Siders. <laughs> a bunch of children who do paranormal investigation are in the Lincoln Heights Jail and they see orbs and they, there's uh, chairs that move by themselves and stuff like that. Broken heart. But, but they don't have a podcast. <laughs> no, they have a TV show. For a while, there was a boxing gym there, and one of the uh, the trainer was named was this? Johnny Flores. He was a really good uh, boxer, but he got wounded, I believe, in World War II, so he couldn't professionally box. But he trained there, and he uh, was told by somebody, "Don't go in the elevator. Always take the stairs. Don't bother with the elevator." And he's like, "Why?" He's like, "Well, it's it's got the same feeling that everything else has. Don't go in the elevator." In 1994. The trainer Johnny Flores falls down an elevator shaft and dies. Yeah, and so the Lincoln Heights Jail, you know, it, it like I said, it's really steeped in like LA noir, and it's it's got a lot of history to it and a lot of hauntings and stuff. I wish the other siders didn't get to it first. <laughs> Our arch nemesis. <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! Some
0: sort oh, of my god. some sort of beast <laughs> just walked by the door of where we're. <laughs> that, I think that was the ghost of uh, Christmas of dead people. <laughs> Okay, so my next story is, uh, it's a lot lighter than everything we've talked about. Mm-hmm. There's no, uh eh, there might be a murder. Nah, there's no yeah. murders. Hey, don't spoil it right away. Yeah. Give me the chance of a murder. There might be a murder. This is more of a debunking mm-hmm. than a, a truly scary story. Okay. This is The Lady in Black. The legend is that a woman dressed entirely in black 1920s mourner's attire is seen nightly wandering through the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Oh, And this woman carries two red roses in her hands as she walks the same path every time towards the same grave every time. Mm -hmm. And she places the roses at the grave, pauses, bows her head, and then disappears. And if any stupid idiot has the courage (laughs) to go up to her, they get glared at by two devilish red (laughs) eyes through the blackness of her veil. Oh, thank you. (laughs) A few times... uh, People have gone over to the roses that she left after she disappeared to try to get a souvenir, mm. uh, only to have the roses jump up at their faces and gash at them with their thorns. Uh. Mm. And the grave that this woman is visiting is of Rudolph Valentino. Now, arguably America's first true, like, scandalous and excessive movie star, mm-hmm. who kind of set the model for everything we think of a movie star is. <laughs> he was the first big movie hunk, really. Mm-hmm. And he was supposedly poisoned by a jealous lover for having cheated on her with another woman. <laughs> Some say the lady in black may be this killer trying to atone for what she did. But there's, uh, there's a lot of theories about who the woman is. Now, that's the only scary part. Okay. It's not scary anymore. Wow, make uh, it scary. Let's have the truth. The truth. <laughs> so, Rudolf Valentino was born. Get ready for this. Rodolfo Alfonso. Raffaello Piero Filiberto Guglielmi di Valentino d'Antoguolo in Castellaneda, Italy on May 6, 1895. That's his whole name. Yeah, 1895 is his family name. (laughs) So after his dad died and he was rejected from the Italian Naval Academy for his physical frailness, (laughs) he he went on to get an agricultural science degree in a college near Genoa. But after, uh, you know, just a leisurely visit to Paris, he fell in love with the glamour and the lifestyle that goes along with that city. He took up a cosmopolitan way of life and he began dancing. His mom sent him money to come back home to Italy. He used it all to gamble and he lost it all. (laughs) So he he came home as an embarrassment. Everyone on his way home from France to Italy was just pointing at him. (laughs) All in, whatever that means. He left at age 18 to go to America. Uh, Where the money he was given to, uh, you know, get himself started in the country, he used to upgrade to a first class cabin. (laughs) So when he got to New York, he had no money again. Mm -hmm. So he started working various odd jobs, supposedly prostituting himself to women and men until one night at a club he was taught. The hot new dance that was sweeping the nation, which was the tango. So knowing the tango, combined with his exotic looks, he started getting gigs to dance at at really upscale clubs where he was able to latch himself to the other top talents Mm -hmm. that were performing in these places also. He even performed for Woodrow Wilson in one of these places. The president. He couldn't help himself. And he got involved with a really rich but really unhappily married Chilean heiress. Mm-hmm. He went on as a gardener because he had his agricultural science degree. Uh, and it's safe to assume that they had an affair. And when the heiress finally divorced her husband, Valentino was called on to testify in court to show the, the husband's infidelities. After the divorce, mm-hmm. the husband, who was really well connected, had Valentino arrested on vice charges. Ooh. And this made him an outcast from all the upscale clubs he was working at, and they loved being in so much. So to make matters worse, the Chilean heiress decided, uh, I want to shoot him. <laughs> so she shot her now ex-husband, and Valentino didn't want anything to do with this. So, in His 19- first smart move. <laughs> yeah. So he spent all of his money, and in 1917, he went west with a theater troupe. Uh, where he was convinced to try his hand at the newly born film industry, mm-hmm. so he started auditioning for movies and he kept dancing and he kept dating more wealthy heiresses until 1921. He got a role in *The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse*, where he broke the studio's habit of casting only milk-fed, mm-hmm. uh, pale-skinned-looking people faces. and they milk faces yeah. and they they so in favor of his swarthy Mediterranean. <laughs> uh, olive guzzling looks and then the same year he starred in a movie that would uh, turn him into the icon Mm -hmm. that he became which was the sheik where he plays an arab sheik who kidnaps a british woman and sort of rapes her and then they Mm -hmm. fall in love he was so charming and exotic in it that uh, it tapped into this the whole forbidden fruit aspect of all these uh, dark Europeans that started coming into the country at the time. Mm-hmm. All the moviegoers fell in love with him. Some women even fainted at the screenings of the movies, mm-hmm. uh, and then a train came at them on the screen, and they all ran away. <laughs> one reporter even asked him if he thought that a white woman would ever fall for a savage like the one, he, <laughs> like the one he played in the movie, uh, and he answered that people are not savages because they have dark skins. So this performance uh, led to the way that you know when people see. Like a wealthy Arabic man dressed in a similar way to how he was in, on screen, mm-hmm. they assume he's a sheik automatically. <laughs> it also started uh, the whole Middle Eastern trend that mm-hmm. had a noticeable impact on the buildings that were built around this time and also on the fashion that people were attending to favor. The song The Sheik of Araby was mm-hmm. about this character. Sheik condoms were made with a silhouette of Valentino <laughs> on them. So Valentino had a few failed marriages in his life. One was to a lady who turned out to be a lesbian. And another that he got in a lot of legal trouble in because he married her while he was still technically married to the first one. So he was arrested for bigamy.
1: (laughs) But she was a lesbian. It doesn't count, your honor. (laughs) Gay marriage is illegal.
0: (laughs) There were also rumors that Valentino himself was secretly gay. His cultural impact was so tangible that tough guy men all over the country were furious with him because he was the catalyst for what was probably America's first metrosexual movement. He was very pretty. So men in different newspapers kept tearing him apart Mm -hmm. for, uh, for making everything in the country effeminate. There was this whole thing like, uh, some guy like saw like a pink soap dispenser in a men's room and he was like, Valentino! And he wrote some op-ed about him. (laughs) Valentino, uh, was so- Furious about this, he yeah. challenged these people to a boxing match because mm-hmm. they were all writing anonymously. And yeah. he said, "If you're so manly, come and box me, and we'll see who's more manly." Valentino's party habits caught up with him very quickly, mm-hmm. and he developed a serious ulcer condition. But he kept on living a really lush lifestyle mm-hmm. with a lot of parties and substance abuse until he was found in his hotel, crippled by pain and <laughs> spitting up blood. When he was rushed to the hospital where they found out that he had multiple ulcers and a burst appendix. Jesus. So they did surgery immediately, but it didn't stop the pain, and he couldn't eat. And after a few days, an infection that, what, that was inside of him spread, and he died on August 23rd, 1926.
1: that August. 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 Hmm. Augustus uh-huh. School? Was it to him.
0: <laughs> so he died August 23rd. He was 31 years old. So remember that he was as popular at the time that he died as all of the Beatles wrapped into one. <laughs> Uh, only Italian and he was called the great lover and he was referred to as catnip to women So so when he died there There had been so many fans waiting outside the hospital to see if he was okay That when the news eventually broke out to the crowd that he was dead The police had to call for backup to keep them from storming the hospital in the, in the crowd Also a few women attempted to commit suicide And then a couple days later an actress in London was found dead in her apartment surrounded by pictures of Valentino And a couple months later, this 20-year-old mother in New York poisoned herself and shot herself twice, (laughs) saying, I'm coming to you, Valentina. (laughs) But she survived, and she was immediately sent to an asylum. So between 80 and 100,000 people visited the church that his funeral was in. An airplane flew over the funeral and dropped rose petals all over the crowd, with the thorns still in it. (laughs) It was rumored that they used a wax replica of his body in the church because they were afraid of his fans <laughs> would literally come up and rip him to pieces.
1: Catnip. It,
0: it was not unjustified because some people uh, at the ceremony tried to storm the church as well. <laughs> his fans loved
1: storming. I, it was a new craze at the time. <laughs> they had just learned what storming was. You mean uh, I could stampede as a human being and call it something else? That makes it seem like I'm not a dirty animal? <laughs> All this storming started a fight with the police <laughs> mm-hmm. that took 150
0: cops Jesus to stop. <laughs> now this is where the lady in black comes in. Okay. So on every anniversary of his death, a woman dressed entirely in black mourner's attire would go straight to Valentino's grave, lay down a few roses, say a prayer at his grave, and then leave. Mm. And nobody knew who this was. And then in the early 1940s, the press took notice and they ran a story about this mysterious woman. And then a woman named Marian Watson came forward and said that she was the woman in black and that Valentino had proposed to her the night before he was hospitalized. And then another woman came Uh forward saying that she was the woman in black and that she was secretly married to Valentino. (laughs) And then another one came forward saying, well, we secretly had a kid. And then one came forward saying, "Uh, my mom was Valentino's great unrequited love. And then another one came forward saying, I am Spartacus. (laughs) This kept going on until the true lady in black was fed up with all these imposters and she finally came forward in 1947 and her name was Dietra Flame. And her story was that as a young girl, she got really sick and she was put into the hospital and Valentino, who was a friend of her mom, Dietra being a fan of Valentino, yeah. he came to the hospital to try to cheer her up. So he brought a pair of roses to her bedside and he was talking to her and she was saying to him uh, that she was afraid that she was going to die. But he said to her, you're not going to die at all. You're going to outlive me by many years. But if I die before you, you please come and stay by me because I don't want to be alone. (laughs) Not long after that, he did die. And Dietra brought roses to his grave every year until Mm -hmm. 1954, by which point his death anniversary had become just a really tacky spectacle. And she was just one of many ladies in black that was coming to visit every year.
1: Was there a reason why she was shrouded in black when she
0: did it? Because I mean she had respect for that doesn't
1: make sense to (laughs) me.
0: I don't understand the concept. In nineteen seventy seven she started visiting again, Mm -hmm. but now she was in regular clothes and she continued doing this until she died in nineteen eighty-four and her grave now reads Lady in Black. Mm -hmm. But now every year you can you can you yourself come on down to Los Angeles, California (laughs) and you can go to the Valentino Memorial Service. Mm -hmm. They have it August every August twenty-third at twelve ten PM which was the time that he died, where a whole gaggle of men and women uh, dressed in black, they gather at his grave, they tell old stories, they watch old clips of his, they play music. But despite knowing all this truth, people still insist that a woman in black is still wandering every night through the cemetery (laughs) with these roses. But even if that isn't true, there's plenty of ghosts in that cemetery, (laughs) including Valentino himself. Mm -hmm. And Valentino, he he had some potent spirit because his dog also haunts the Pet Cemetery in Calabasas. Where the Menendez. Where the is Menendez- Menendez- <laughs> would spend their time.
1: <laughs> My family every year does the um, Day of the Dead altar there at yeah. the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. And, you know, walking around... Uh, there's always a big thing happening at Rudolph Adams, you know, a little site. It's amazing. I'm going to be talking about Rancho Los Amigos, a hospital in Downey, which was once known as Hollydale, which was once known as Sunny Acres, which was once known as the poor farm, which was once known as the L.A. County poor farm, which was once known as the L.A. County farm, which was once known as the psychopathic ward of the L.A. County which, which was once known as Prince. <laughs> <laughs> this is an abandoned hospital that still stands, and it's very large. I, I read 55 acres. I don't know if that's true. I don't know acreage, but I know <laughs> that it's big. I drove around, and it's not an easy drive. I can only imagine walking, which you're really not supposed to do because the um, the now the main quarters bari- uh, up front is a police station. Mm-hmm. Downey, like I was saying, was 12 miles south of downtown LA. The address for Rancho Los Amigos is 56 Descanso Street. Now, there's two Rancho Los Amigos. There's a new one that they built to replace the one I'm about to talk about. That one is fully functioning, as far as I know, not haunted. This one, the old one, abandoned one, supposedly haunted. But let's skip a little history on it first. Yes, let's please skip the history on it. <laughs> like I was saying, it's a police station up front. It, everything else is abandoned. The Marines use it for tactical training, for urban stuff, like off-base training. They still use it for that. So between like Marines running around and cops, and let's not forget, the place is overrun with feral cats. <laughs> like it's just... Everywhere. Like, there's a cat for every inch of this place. There's <laughs> so many cats. A lot of old buildings that were never torn down. They're, they're fenced off with barbed wire fences, and they also have, like, the windows and doors are boarded up. Did the cats do that? Yeah. They're, they're carpenters. Downey, Downey raises them very good. My cousin take, took me there. Uh, he lives, like, right around the corner in Downey. Uh, <laughs> we were talking about abandoned hospitals, and he's like, oh, I know of. one is right over. So he takes me, and I didn't really know what to expect. I just expected an old, like, like, Alley County Hospital uh, sort of looking building and we just drive, we do a loop around and then we leave and we look at boarded up windows and I kind of get mm-hmm. the spooks. This is like a little ghost town. Like it's so big and it had so much functionality before when it was when it was an operating place. And then they just, it's just abandoned. It was never torn down. Originally the facility was known as the County Poor Farm. It was opened in 1887 and 1888 and it was to house like the needy of the area and it was like a rehab facility which provided work and housing and like medical care for everybody. And from my, I read, originally the purchase was for like 124 acres. But I know that it used to be more than just a hospital grounds, so it used to be a farmland too. It used to be a self sufficient agricultural livestock area because they were helping people get back into work. So they were building, you know, they used these workers on the farm, which is why I was called the poor farm. By the 1890s, it had become, like I said, completely fully operational as agricultural and the livestock. They had sheep, they had cows, they had chickens, hogs, horses, they had strawberries. Peaches, pears, cabbage, corn, celery, sugar beets. And I read that it became like nationally recognized at some point as like a model for how these things should be run for rehab facilities for workers. In the late 1890s and early 1900s, it expands, become like a medical facility for everybody because they keep getting, you know, the poor are coming and they have diseases that can't be treated anywhere else, like polio and TB. It becomes really big on treating that sort of long-term invalid people eventually. It expands not only in practice and how they operate, but they keep building new buildings. They keep constructing on everything. The man responsible for this was named William Ruddy Harriman. He takes over as superintendent in 1915 of the Porn Farm and he completely revamps everything. They're doing well already, but he kind of, he like pushes it forward because there's this uh, surge of finances after World War One, So he has just the money to do stuff like this. He expands medical operations. He gets more staff in because they had about like 500 destitute men and women and about 45 people just taking care of everybody. Now he <laughs> steps it up. After this point, after Harriman takes over, they start push forward. They now offer around-the-clock patient care and attention. Uh, they have patient wards. There's addition to the men and women's psychiatric buildings. They have dining rooms. Uh, nurse dormitories They have a water tower. They have a power plant. Like I said there's uh, streets within this facility it, it looks like a, a little town there's paved streets everywhere bungalows they, they built a large auditorium okay. I've read about the history from this plan to build a bigger auditorium and then what they want to do is basically just have movies and plays and get people like functioning mm-hmm. to each other it became like a like a big center for and this people. was all
0: built by feral cats if
1: yeah I'm, by feral. if I'm if I'm paying attention <laughs> The it ghost of feral cats built this place it also had a library that was county run. Call back to the first episode. Boo. Boo. Listen to the first S- episode. Harriman moves into this beautiful house on the course, which I've seen, which is what house? That's I don't believe is boarded off, but that's probably because the cops live there. By 1922, they have 1500 ambulatory patients living there and about 175 employees. It's a big jump between the two. They just like he says, he's pushing everything forward. Mm-hmm. Next couple decades, it keeps expanding and then kind of plateauing. After World War II, they started bringing in a lot of patients from there, a lot of veterans from World War II, not only treating like physical wounds, but also helping men with PTSD. You know, there's this legend that it's a mental asylum. Not as much as just like a psychiatric ward. Mm -hmm. So they have a lot of stories like this. I keep reading stories about uh, torturing patients, blah, blah, blah. I really don't think that. But I do think that there were some really unhappy people there. (laughs) And then the 80s hits. Reagan era conservatism takes over. And then this place, like most other psychiatric wards are kind of cut down because of budget cuts. There's like a really critical eye on on the way mental hospitals are helping people. A lot of those people get put out on the street. (laughs) They get money for a new building. So they are able to do that. But this big facility... Is pretty much just shut down after they lose funding they can't operate anymore so they, they have another building and they leave this place one of the forum posts that i was reading put it really perfectly it doesn't look like there's any signs of struggle but someone definitely left a hurry because they just left everything like there's paper there's charts everywhere it just looks like they just left without like packing up and it has it has this feeling of like a zombie, like a post-apocalyptic attack where everything was just left over and they're just like whatever. And there's a lot of pictures of like trespassers, and that's basically what they are now—people who like film sneaking into these buildings and people put who it sneak on.
0: It, sneak into buildings and record podcasts. Exactly. Like, I hate exactly.
1: Those people. Idiots. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My favorite rumor is that the reason the county hasn't torn all this stuff down is because they don't want to endanger the feral cats that <laughs> run the place. <laughs> they run the place. There are so many cats. Apparently, there's a lady that comes and feeds the cats. I think that. They don't... I'm pretty sure they ate the lady. They're just so <laughs> strong. I know what you're thinking. Oh, there's probably about 12. No, there are so many. There's, there's 12 elders <laughs> of the cat <laughs> The cat council. <laughs> A lot of people sneak in on the property, which, I mean, I drove there at night. My cousin shows me during the day. It has such an effect on me that I return the next night I'm driving around yeah. the property. It's even scarier. Like, during the day, it has. it's really unnerving. It's like My- the first episode of Twilight Zone <laughs> where there's just signs of life and
0: there's no <laughs> yeah. life there. My girlfriend... Whirly wants to visit there at night, but I
1: forbid her. her. You hear that? I forbid you. (laughs) I've gone there twice at night, and both times I got stopped by cops almost immediately. (laughs) And they don't have a problem with me driving around, but they're like... What are you doing here? I'm like oh, I'm just showing my friend the place. And like, are you gonna pull over? And I said no. I'm just driving around. I'm like, don't don't get out of the car. Don't <laughs> stop driving. Just you can drive around. It's but like don't get
0: out. It's like when you drive into one of those uh, uh, lion enclosures <laughs> at a zoo and you can't get out of the
1: car. The place <laughs> at night is really oh, it has such a feeling. There's another rumor which it, it cannot possibly be true. They had a, a church facility there. A patient ran up to a priest and said, "I need an emergency confession." And the priest is like, oh, "Okay, is that unusual?" And the thing that he wanted to confess to him is, I'm gonna kill you. And he like cut, he like slit his throat, and then uh, you know he he took out a security guard and took the keys and started freeing all the other patients, and then they ran around the facility, jailbreak. killing jailbreak exactly, killing other nurses and stuff, and then ran around townie and like snuck into houses, and then some of them they never found to this day. But there are a lot of claims that you know they drive around the lots, you see like faces in some of the windows, mm. which is really nervous. A lot of noises coming from inside buildings. Someone apparently got a book thrown at them while they were alone <laughs> in a sub-basement <laughs> of the hospital. That was just the police throwing the book <laughs> for trespassing. I, I think a lot of the, the feelings of creepiness people get are just, like I said, cheap thrills of trespassing. However, mm. there was something very interesting I read. In 2006, during a training exercise by the Marines, a few soldiers found a really old freezer and they decided to open it because their Marines are not scared of anything. Yeah, they're not afraid of freezers <laughs> like we are. They found 10 legs, feet, and brain matter mummified for 40 years. Now, apparently, there's no, like, uh, suspicion of foul play. They're all amputated medical (laughs) specimens. Why why would there be? But like I said, they left in such a hurry. They're like, don't worry about the brain matter and the feet. Just leave it here. (laughs) That's, to me, like, (sighs) not only finding body parts and having questions about it and, like, what kind of amputated medical, you know, research is everybody doing but they just left it there <laughs> that's really unnerving to me you know which means that it was so commonplace that they didn't think <laughs> we should get rid of this I'm not hungry so just leave the brain out of there <laughs>
0: I'm not even going to eat it today. take the elbows <laughs> so this is the one I was really excited
1: yeah, about I was really excited because you kept building up and you didn't give me anything about anybody. it <laughs> I didn't let you go near Griffith Park in case someone whispered something I had a picture of it on my laptop and you
0: closed <laughs> it shut and he said how dare you and I ripped up your laptop (laughs) so this is the curse of doña petrania which i still can't pronounce this is the second time recording it it. i kept thinking people everyone's name was don or donna but that's just their title (laughs) this is a really creepy story about betrayal curses murder Mm. and ostriches (laughs) All my favorite stuff in one setting. This story stretches back to the initial settling of Los Angeles, which is just what people want to hear this far into the podcast.
1: <laughs> Can you go farther
0: back? There's a fish and it gets out of the water and it starts to walk on its legs. So it goes all the way back then to as recently as 2007 mm-hmm. and even continues on to the present day. In 1781, a, <sighs> man, a man named José Vicente Feliz... Mm-hmm which is my second Jose. He was assigned because he had military experience mm-hmm. to be the military escort for 11 Mexican families that were moving to this area yeah. to found El Pueblo de la Reina de Los Angeles, oh. which was the seed from which this ent- our entire city sprung from. It was founded September 7th, 1781. You're still able to visit it. It's a thing next to over a very short thing. thing. In 1787, he was appointed by Governor Pedro to be commissionado mm-hmm, Saying everything right. He's pretty much the one in charge of the Pueblo mm-hmm. until 1800, when life had sort of uh, fallen into a routine and it was a little bit safer and it was no longer necessary to have a military man in charge. Mm-hmm. So he retired and applied for a plot of land outside the Pueblo, which he got because life outside the Pueblo was still very dangerous. Yeah. So they figured only a soldier would be able to tame it. So they gave him 6,647 acres, which became Rancho Los Feliz. Mm -hmm. It covered what is now Los Feliz. That's where the name came from. Mm -hmm. And also a large part of what is now Griffith Park. So, the ranch was referred to as Happy Farm because their name Feliz, which means Christmas. <laughs> so, Feliz died in 1822, and from there, the land went to his wife, Dona Maria Ignacia Feliz Verdugo, mm-hmm. who then in 1853 deeded it to her daughters and her son, Don Jose Antonio Feliz. Right. And this is where our story truly begins. Oh boy. The daughters ended up selling their shares of the land for a dollar an acre to the family attorney. Don Antonio Coronel. So Don Feliz was, he was never married and he lived on the ranch with his sister Soledad and their brother's orphan daughter, Dona Petronilla. So in 1863, Don Feliz contracted smallpox and fearing that he would spread it to the 17 year old Petronilla, he sent her away to live somewhere else until there was no more danger of her getting it. Mm-hmm. So then during this time, the family attorney, Don Cornell, who, he was also an L.A. city council member and also a former mayor, he came to visit with a lawyer of his own named Don Inocante. When they came, Don Feliz, he was already on his deathbed, and the two insisted on drawing up his will before it was too late, which he had, he, he was, he was dead. He was pretty <laughs> much dead. And what they did, he was so sick, he couldn't do anything, so it said that the lawyers attached a stick to the back of his head. And they would nod his head for him, <laughs> you know, whenever they would say some agreement that he would have to agree to. And then they asked him, are you, are you a stupid face? And they would nod his head. This ties back to Marion Parker, by the way, but not in a funny way. Then Don Feliz died. And conveniently, surprise, surprise, Don Coronel got all the land that he had, <coughs> while Soledad got some furniture and Petronilla. When she came back to the ranch, she found out she got absolutely nothing. Wow. So she was furious. And this is what she said. Your falsity shall be your ruin. The substance of the Feliz family shall be your curse. The lawyer that assisted you in your infamy and the judge shall fall beneath the same curse. You, Signor, shall know misery in your age. And although you die rich, your substance shall go to vile persons. A blight shall fall upon the face of this terrestrial paradise. The cattle shall no longer fatten, but sicken on its pastures. The field shall no longer respond to the toil of the tiller. The grand oak shall wither and die. The wrath of heaven and the vengeance of hell shall fall upon this place. Vote Nixon.
1: That's an intense speech, by the way. It's very frightening. Yeah.
0: I don't know how they know what... That's what she said. Some people say that for dramatic effect, she dropped dead right then and there. But that's not true. She lived for several years after that. Repeating the speech to several people. Yeah. And then I said... She went on tour with that speech. (laughs) So with this, the fun really began. The heirs took the case to the Supreme Court, but they, of course, the judge sided with the well-connected Coronel. It didn't take long until Coronel began to have second thoughts about what he did. The land he had now had would flood in the winter, have droughts in the summer, and would burn in between. The cattle got sick and died. The mm-hmm. grapes he was growing withered. And then meanwhile, in Ocante, the lawyer who helped him with this was shot to death, and the judge that had presided over the case also met a very unfortunate similar end. Jesus. So in 1868, Coronel had had enough of the land, and he conveyed it over to a man named Charles V. Howard who promptly sold the land's water rights. And in celebrating the deal, he got drunk at a saloon and got a little too rowdy with the wrong people and was shot dead. After this, it exchanged hands a few times between a financier from San Francisco named Thomas Bell, Mm -hmm. who he lived to to be older, but he died falling off the banister of his mansion. (laughs) And then James Lick, who was uh, at the time the wealthiest man in California. Mm-hmm. He, he also owned Catalina Island. Ooh. But nobody who had it could seem to turn a profit from the land, and it eventually got sold to a dairy man named Leon Lucky Baldwin. How lucky? I'll tell you how lucky. <laughs> his cows got sick, oh. fires destroyed his grains, grasshoppers ate his crops, and his dairy failed. And then he got even luckier when he went on a business trip to Mexico and got killed by a band of banditos. Wow. That sounds like the 10th legs. Yeah. The banditos was the (laughs) 10th leg. He was forced, before he died, he was forced to sell the land on December 8th, 1882 to a very rich gold mine speculator by the name of Colonel Griffith J. Griffith. The J stands for Griffith. He was an eccentric character and the title he had of Colonel actually didn't mean anything because he never served in any military. Mm -hmm. He just bought the favor from the California Guard to give him the honorary title.
1: How much does a colonel cost?
0: (laughs) Give me a colonel. What about a corporal? (laughs) Griffith's plan was to try to attract people to come live on the land Mm -hmm. and to turn it into a suburbs. And part of this great plan of his was to set up an ostrich farm. Obviously. And after a couple of years, what suburb isn't complete without (laughs) an ostrich farm? After a couple of years of struggling with the land, this huge storm hit in 1884 that caused lightning to strike the oaks. That were on his property mm-hmm. and it caused the LA River to rise up and flood all the rest of his land. <laughs> and during the storm the ranch hands claimed that uh, they saw the ghost of Don Feliz dancing on top of the waves to the El Harabe. <laughs> which is the, the, the Such a fun song for a ghost. He's a fun ghost. He's a fun ghost. He knows how to after live. <laughs> so then after all this, the ostriches from the ostrich farm took to stampeding at night without any explanation. And then Griffith became so creeped out himself by the land that he would only visit it at midday. The ostrich farm turned out to be a failure. so he yeah, was, How was that
1: possible? It
0: was a foolproof plan. <laughs> and he was forced to foreclose. And then also a man who was renting out part of Griffith's land named Frank Burkett. Yeah. He got into a legal disagreement with Griffith over the rights to the land. Yeah. And ended up costing Burkett a lot of money. So he then swore vengeance on Griffith. Then on October 28th, 1891. Griffith took his wife and her sister to the old Cavalry Cemetery, which is now the Cathedral High School next to Dodger Stadium. Their
1: mascot is the Phantoms because it was built on a so My brother went there.
0: Wow, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, I should have done research. <laughs> they went there to pay their respects to the family that they had that was buried there. Mm-hmm. So Griffith gave them their privacy. He waited outside the walls, and as he was waiting, a carriage pulled up next to him. <sighs> And inside the carriage was Frank Burkett holding a double-barreled shotgun that he used to fire at Griffith's head. Like a drive-by. It was like (laughs) the first First drive-by of a a long and proud tradition (laughs) of drive-bys in this city. But Griffith, he managed to survive the shot and crawl behind the cemetery walls. Burkett thought, well, he's dead. So then he got a revolver and shot himself in the head. But the investigation afterward revealed that the reason Griffith survived was because Burkett had accidentally loaded his shotgun with non-lethal birdshot. Birdshot. Which is what the Menendez is. You, tell, you tell Kitty that it's non-lethal. Yeah. So Griffith managed to escape this curse just by dumb luck. Uh-huh. But just for the moment. Griffith, just could, he couldn't turn any profit on the rancho, so... He donated all the land to the city in 1896 because he just couldn't afford the taxes on it. Yeah. And supposedly at the party celebrating this very generous donation, the ghost of Don Feliz appeared again (laughs) and sat down in a seat reserved for Griffith and announced to everyone, I come to invite you to dine with me in hell. In your great honor, I have brought an escort of sub-demons. They make such these Felize's and make beautiful speeches. Subdemons
1: so, is such a cool term. <laughs> I know.
0: At which point the lights went out and the sound of gongs and cymbals filled the room. It's suspected that this might have just been an elaborate prank, but nobody stuck around to find <laughs> out. <laughs> or to find out what a subdemon <laughs> is. From this point on, Griffith began to slowly lose his mind. Many say because of his excessive drinking habits. That'll do it. He was... Uh, Protestant, I believe. Okay. And he became convinced that his Catholic wife, Mary Agner Christina Mesmer, was conspiring with the Pope <laughs> to poison him and take all of his money. And so it even, it the representative
1: got, of God is here to
0: kill me. It got to the point that Griffith would switch his plate with hers at dinner when she wasn't Jesus. looking. And then on September 3rd, 1903, uh, he decided to make the first strike. (laughs) So he took his wife to the presidential suite at the Arcadia Hotel, made her get down on her knees, gave her a prayer book, and told her to say her prayers. Not
1: creepy at all. No.
0: She said her prayers. He aimed right at her face. He shot her, but she jerked her head at the last minute, so the bullet went straight through her eye. Oh my god. And she was alive enough to climb out the window and then fall onto the awning (sighs) below and then crawl into (laughs) another room. So she survived this. She successfully got him sentenced to two years in San Quentin prison. Her and her husband
1: were really good at, at avoiding dying from gunshots. Yeah, they
0: I- They have good genes. He he was said to have alcoholic insanity, and he served just one year before he got released. Shot my wife, give me a year. (laughs) I could do it in one. (laughs) So when he got out, nobody wanted anything to do with him. Mm -hmm. Uh, He eventually died of liver disease in 1919, and he left in his will $700,000 to be given to the city to build what will become the Greek Amphitheater and the Griffith Observatory. Which will keep the curse going. <laughs> so, after this, the curse took the form a lot of times as a wildfire. Mm-hmm. On October 3rd, 1933, 3,780 men were clearing brush at the mineral wells area mm-hmm. when a fire broke out, uh, and a lot of them volunteered to try to fight it. Problem was that none of them <laughs> knew how to fight a fire, <laughs> and they all got trapped. When all was said Awful. and done, 29 of them died, 150 were injured. Uh, The firefighters that came were able to contain the blaze to 47 acres. It remains to this day the deadliest in L.A. history. Another large fire occurred in 1961. Then in 2006, L.A. County's uh, Acute Communicable Disease Control Unit Put the park on bubonic plague alert <laughs> they had the
1: signs for that on
0: the bike path and i'd be like what <laughs> morning black death uh, <laughs> don't <so> eat rats <laughs> i know they're delicious everyone just stop eating the rats so they put it on bubonic plague alert when Jesus. a person that had been hiking through the park had been found to contract it then on May 8th, 2007, a huge fire. It burned 800 acres of mm-hmm. land in the park. This had been the fifth fire in the park just since 2006. Jesus. So then, going back to things that had been built by Griffith's death grant, yeah. the observatory went on to become the centerpiece of the movie Rebel Without a Cause. Mm-hmm. The setting defined the movie that went on to define the career of several actors, including James Dean, mm-hmm. who defined a cultural movement. Much like Ruby so, the three stars yeah. of the movie. James Dean mm-hmm. died in a traffic accident at age 24.
1: 24? 24. Can you imagine That's that? That's ridiculous. Yeah.
0: Natalie Wood fell off a boat, hit her head, and then drowned off the coast of Catalina Island.
1: That's what Robert Wagner wants you to believe. Go ahead. At age 43.
0: And Sal Minio was murdered outside his West Hollywood apartment oh, at age God. 37.
1: I never, you know what, I never actually thought about it. I how. know, it was yeah. weird.
0: Like, they were saying all these things with the curse, and then they mentioned Griffith Observatory, and then they mentioned the James Dean sculpture, and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> it's all, it's all true. <laughs> yeah. Other things that had happened in the park, the suicide of Peg Entwistle. She mm-hmm. jumped off the H on the Hollywood sign. Jeez. There's reports of a ghost of a man walking down the steps near the merry-go-round and disappearing oh. before the last step. People visiting the old zoo grounds have had visions of sick and cannibalistic animals and monkeys hanging themselves. <laughs> this is the one that scares me most of all. There's reports of this horrifying humanoid beast that's uh-huh. in the park. He has green skin, red hair, a really long body, his back is bent way back, and then his neck is bent way forward, oh. like a like a S. Yeah. He has no whites in his eyes. Oh, the rangers in the park, for some reason, are also not allowed to tell ghost stories. <laughs> Not all of the owners of the land have fallen victim to some unfortunate fate. Like James Lick, he was fine. Yeah. But people say this because his part of the land that he owned didn't belong to the part that should have gone to Petronella. So right. they say the, he was exempt from the curse. Yeah, it's in that
1: policy, yeah. yeah it's in the
0: curse contract. <laughs> Nowadays, Don Feliz's ghost is reportedly spotted on horseback near B-Rock. Mm-hmm. Griffith's ghost is seen also on horseback roaming around the grounds. Doña Petrania herself is seen sometimes on horseback, other times in a white dress peering through the windows of the old Paco Feliz adobe at midnight. Griffith Park is the second largest park in California.
1: Come visit. <laughs> Terrifying. It's horrible If you walk that, like, it, those... Two, two to four hour trails oh, where, yeah. as it's becoming it's dusk. Too, you've started to... Yeah, and like, by the time I get to the car, which I park near the merry-go-round, I'm going to be I'm gonna be dead by this big green monster. Just hide behind the hanging monkeys. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this was, you know, round two of doing this. <laughs> I hope everyone enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, a few things. We've got our website going now, finally. lameekly.tumblr.com Check it out. We'll have a lot of pictures mm-hmm. of the stuff we're talking about. We'll we'll hang a monkey.
1: It's a bad monkey. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know. Follow us on Tumblr. Leave a review for us on iTunes. A nice one. You know. Nice one. If it's a mean one, make it funny.
1: Yeah, really Re- funny. roast us.
0: Yeah. This has been episode two of LA Meekly. Hope everyone enjoyed it. Good night, everybody. Good night and catchphrase pending.
1: <laughs>